Welcome to Happenings of Grace, a podcast dedicated to sharing the ways in which God works in the congregation of Grace Covenant Presbyterian Church in Williamsburg, Virginia. Well, hello, everybody. Um, my name's Dan McConaughey. There are handouts if you didn't get one. They're right there in the middle. So uh, I'll give you an idea of what we're covering. Um, so this is going to be on the uh, text and canon of the New Testament. And I've been very attached to the text of the New Testament for a long time. I became a Christian in 1972, uh, during, at the end of 11th grade. Um, and I became very enthusiastic. But I, I was the kind of kid that I never believed anybody. Prove it to me. I, I should have been from Missouri, I guess, instead of South Carolina. But, uh, you know, I got it. I you know, started out in the King James Version, I went, oh, you know, the things in italics were added by the translators. Oh, that's cool. But then you, you hear preachers preaching, and they said, well, you know, the, the old texts say, wah. And I go, really? Well, how do I know he's really telling me the truth? And then how do I even know that the translation is right? I mean, this is, I just, was it natural for me to do that? And, uh, so I went to Clemson for, after 11th grade, I went to Clemson. Mom got me in college, so I didn't get kicked out of high school. Uh, so I went to Clemson, didn't like it, went to the College of Charleston. And I had to have a foreign language at the College of Charleston, and I hated French. So mom told me that they taught Greek. She knew I was interested in the Bible. She took Greek at Syracuse when she was in college, so she had an interest like that. So I decided to take Greek. So that was 51 years ago. It's hard to believe. So that changed my life. And, uh, you know, I started reading Greek and it was like just a whole dimension of the word uh, opened up to me. In fact, sometimes I'd read it and I got so excited, I was shot for the, the rest of the day. I couldn't even look at it anymore. <laughs> So it's pretty cool, but, uh, you know, and, and things like, uh, you know, 1 John 3, 1, Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it does not, but, uh, isn't that what it says? <sighs> but the Greek, you know, the King James has it different, right? King James has, Beloved, now, 1 John 3, 1. Hebrews, James, 1 John 3, 1, yeah, uh, behold, oh, behold what manner of love the Father gave to us that we uh, would be called the children of God. Uh, but, you know, in the old manuscripts it says, and we are. But that wasn't in the King James Version. You know, it was just stuff like that that just kind of got my imagination. But that's what it says. I don't know what your Bible says, but it's in the, the oldest manuscript, you know, uh, and we are. Yeah. Uh, so it just is exciting, and all the figures of speech you can see in there. So anyhow, I got in that, and then, you know, I went, well, you know, how do I know the Greek? You know, I got the King James, I got the Greek, how do I know the Greek's right? So I got into textual criticism. You ever hear of Bruce Metzger? When I was a teenager, I used to correspond with him, and he would write me back. <laughs> so that, that, you know, speaks to the, what a kind man he was. Uh, but he wrote this book on textual criticism. Just loved it. And textual criticism is a study of the ancient manuscripts and trying to reconstruct the original. Because no two 
manuscripts uh, are the same. So they're all handwritten. So there's, there's that discipline there. Uh, so I used to correspond with Bruce Metzger. I got interested in textual criticism. And one thing led to another. Then I got interested in the idea that the originals of the New Testament were written in Aramaic. You know, because Jesus and the Apostles spoke Aramaic. So then I thought, oh, I got to go that direction. So I studied Syriac. You know, it's just, you know, one thing led to another. So anyhow, so we're here, and we're going to look at the text and the canon, actually in reverse order. We're going to discuss the canon, and I'm going to discuss the canon in terms of really misconceptions until we learn what it is, because you've probably heard the misconceptions, and maybe you've dealt with them, and maybe you haven't. So, so anyhow, so we got the introduction. Okay, this, this is the outline of it. And uh, so we got introduction, misconceptions I'll deal with, and then we'll deal with what it is, and that's the self-authenticating model uh, of the canon. And what's the canon? So I haven't told you what the canon is. That's sort of a, the 21st century definition would be the, the authoritative list of books of the New Testament or the Old Testament, okay? It's the canon. It comes from the Greek word kanon, which is like, we get the, our word cane from it, and it was a measuring stick, okay? And it wasn't until the 4th century that that word was ever applied to the scriptures. Uh, really, this notion of the, uh, a technical term canon came in much later. But that doesn't mean it didn't exist. All right. So, then we'll look at so the canon. Then, you know, maybe next week, uh, the transmission. That's uh, the New Testament. We'll get into the ancient versions, textual criticism. And then what's really interesting is what the manuscripts tell us about the beginnings of the church and the New Testament. When I started this, that wasn't in the, the program. It was the Bruce Metzger program of collating manuscripts and reading the text. But then this guy came along and he says, well, let's just look at the Bibles, the, the remains. And the oldest Christian remains are biblical texts. You know, the papyri from Egypt, things like that. So what do they tell us about the transmission of the text and the history of the early church? So that, that is really cool. And it all dovetails. All right. So uh, canon, okay, I already told you this. It refers to the list of books considered authoritative. wasn't applied to the scriptures until the mid to late 4th century. And I'll show you that. So Bruce Metzger, he's got another book. Oh, yeah, the canon of the New Testament. Metzger was really good. So he comments in the introduction to his book of the, uh, on the canon, he says, nothing is more amazing in the annals of the Christian church than the absence of detailed accounts of so significant a process. Right, I mean, if you think about it, why don't we know what happened? We don't. But I... You'll see why maybe we don't have any annals that tell us about this. It was all taken care of. And it was just taken for granted. You know, write history about stuff everybody knows about, or, you know, it's just, you know, we, we have nothing on it. But, 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 yeah, it was a very interesting observation by Dr. Metzger. All right. So due to the absence of the detailed account noted by Metzger, there are a variety of misconceptions and speculations. That's where the academics come in. 
Let's speculate. All right, so yeah, I don't want to dish on them too much since I'm kind of in the same group. So what we won't do here is look at the apocryphal. Okay, I mean, that's a different category. It's apocryphal. It's not scripture, so uh, we'll, we'll just not deal with it here. All right, so misconceptions. All right, number one, the canon refers to a fixed and final list for centuries. Now, that's common. Yeah, the, someone was in here who watched the Da Vinci Code and thought it was some kind of a conspiracy with, you know, Constantine and all those guys. But that, that's not quite uh, the history of the text uh, canon. But anyhow, this is a popular uh, theory because there is a list, an authoritative list, Athanasius, Feastal Letters, 397 or whatever. We'll get it. I got the date. Uh, oops. All right. So, so the definition for these folks implies that there was scripture beforehand, but not a canon. Now, uh, the question to ask is, did the church make this distinction? Canon is not really part of the vocabulary of the early church, as I already mentioned to you. Um, but the thing is, if there, you know, the, the, the canon guys, fourth century, uh, if there was scripture, then that already implies a selection process, right? What's scripture and what's not scripture? I mean, you can call it whatever you want, right? But again, people focus on these definitions and then they can write interesting writing write papers and get tenure. So many advocates of this exclusive definition uh, view Athanasius' can canonical list contained in his Feast of 367 as a date. And what is he? Uh, but even that's not final. The Council of Trent, the Roman Church in you know, 1540s or so, uh, came up with a list. Yeah, and that was a whole list, Old Testament and New Testament, and it included a few apocryphal things too. But again, they're apocryphal, yeah. so they're, they're outside of it. But, so there was a can, uh, the Council of Trent, so it was still going on, so even that definition isn't quite right. And then the Syriac Church today excludes the minor Catholic epistles, MCE. The, to this day, the Syriac canon leaves out 2 Peter, 2 3 John, Jude, and Revelation out of their canon. And it's just the way it is. But anyhow... So there is no exclusive definition or final list. So that theory is, is incomplete. So uh, and Athanasius in the late fourth century, Athanasius's late fourth century list. So uh, Tim divided all this up so it would fit, and it's not the same as your handouts. And my, my visual was based on these PowerPoints I prepared. So Athanasius' late 4th century list was not the first complete list. Origin in his homilies on Joshua 7.1, you know, you know, the walls of Jericho falling down. Uh, written about 250 A.D. implies 27 books of the New Testament, like what we have today. So we'll read what Origin, he was like a, he was like an Albert Einstein of the Bible of his day, just a massive workaholic brain. I mean, he, he, he did all these commentaries. And then he wrote the Hexapla, Origins Hexapla, where he did the Old Testament in six columns, Hexa, P 
plot. He had the Hebrew and transliterated the Hebrew, and he had three Greek translations, and then the Septuagint, six columns. So most of that's been lost here and there. Bits of it have been found, especially in Syriac. So, so what did Origen say? So he said, so too our Lord Jesus Christ and his apostles as priests, carrying well-wrought trumpets, because, you know, he's referring to the, the going around Jericho, blowing the trumpets, okay? First, Matthew sounded the priestly trumpet in his gospel. Mark also and Luke and John each gave forth a strain on their priestly trumpets. Peter, moreover, sounds with two trumpets. So we know Peter, right? First and second Peter. Uh, uh, two trumpets of his epistles. James also and Jude. Still the number's incomplete. And John gives forth the trumpet sound through his epistles. And some manuscripts also include the Apocalypse. And Luke, while describing the deeds of the apostles. Latest of all, moreover, that one comes who said, I think that God has set us forth as the apostles Last of all, that's, and the thundering on the 14 trumpets of his epistles, he threw down, even to their very foundations, the wall of Jericho. That is to say, all the instruments of idolatry and the dogmas of the philosophers. So that's how they did commentaries on the Old Testament in the third century. Very nice way to express things. But he also, Origen also wrote on his homily on Genesis 3-2, where Isaac's digging wells. Isaac, therefore, digs also new wells. Nay, rather, Isaac's servants dig them. Isaac's servants are Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. His servants are Peter, James, Jude. The apostle Paul is his servants. These all dug the wells of the New Testament. <laughs> then in his commentary on Matthew, he implies a completed New Testament. So this is well before Athanasius. Before our Savior Jesus Christ, this net was not wholly filled. For the net of the law and prophets had to be completed. And the texture of the net has been completed in the Gospels and in the words of Christ through the apostles. So he, he's implying already that, you know, this thing is done. We got it. They got it. All right. Or theory number two. There's no reason for a canon in the first century. This theory suggests that there was nothing to direct the church to develop a canon early on. Why people would say that? Oops, I don't know. So it ignores that Christ was a fulfillment of Old Testament promises. You had the whole Hebrew canon. I mean, that, yeah, the apostles were Jews. Paul was a Jew. He was educated. They had a canon. They knew what the scriptures were. Okay? So Christ was a fulfillment of the Old Testament promise. Matthew begins with a Davidic theme, just... Pulling in, you know, you read Malachi and go right into Matthew. Yeah, okay. Jesus inaugurated the new covenant. You know, he talks about that. Uh, so maybe you're familiar with some of these scriptures. I, I, I don't think we have time to read a whole lot of those. But, you know, Jesus talked about this is the covenant, new covenant of my blood. Jeremiah talks about I'll have a new covenant, write it on their hearts. So uh, this was all... Uh, familiar to them. And the old co covenant had written documents. There's a whole thing on that. So you have a covenant and you have written documents and a canon of Scripture. So why wouldn't the new covenant have written documents? Okay. So 
Apostle Paul and the others are ministers of the new covenant. He says that. And, and 2 Corinthians is a written text. Christ sent the apostles to speak for him. And we'll see later on. That was one of the real criteria of what scripture. It had to be apostolic. Okay, because they were special. Anyone see uh, The Chosen recently? Yeah, we saw it last, yesterday. I love that thing. The Chosen. They were chosen. Paul's letter had apostolic authority. We ought to read. You know, one thing I forgot was an English Bible. <laughs> you know, uh, you know let, let, let's look at 2 Thessalonians uh, 2.15. Yeah, let's just, some of these are kind of important. 2 Thessalonians 2.15. Oops. Oh, here we go. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or letter. It's real specific. Yeah, and Paul's a good Jew. He's not giving them stuff that would contradict the faith. And then uh, 3.14 in 2 Thessalonians. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person, have nothing to do with him, that he may be ashamed. He thought his letter was something special, right? Okay. He's making big claims. All right. So, the church did not decide later. So, in conclusion of all of this, we're still on number two. Uh, the church did not decide later what was Scripture. It was just a natural development. Now, Paul's making these statements in his letters. He's not stupid. The readers aren't stupid. Okay? All right, theory number three. The New Testament authors didn't think they were writing Scripture. I call this the clueless theory. All right. But there are people that write books and articles and believe that, and they're, real, they're smarter than we are. They're just clueless. All right. So for many in academia, this is, has become a given. But it's sort of an academic myth. If you repeat things long enough, uh, people start to believe it or think it's just that's the way it is. People said it so long that the next generation or two generations after believe it to be established. But the argument out of silence, you know, that's the lack, often is often employed by the critics. But, you know, so what it, was it? It was the, they didn't think they were writing scriptures. Well, okay, well, they read the Bible a certain way, we read the Bible, but anyhow. So, they said, we see no evidence for that. But the argument of, from silence is always the weak, you know, like attorneys or you know, no evidence. Uh, but that's the weakest. It might be true, but it's weak. You know, you always want evidence, right? So, uh, but, it, you know, this argument's often employed. And we call these guys the critics, like they're some kind of scientific people, but... It's, it, they abuse information, in my opinion. So based on number two, what we just saw, this doesn't follow. 
1 Thessalonians 2.13, perhaps the earliest epistle makes a bold statement as to the authority of the apostolic uh, writings. 2.13, and we thank God constantly for this, that you received the word of God which you heard from us. You accepted it not as a word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God which is at work in you believers. I mean, you know, he's made bold statements. And we got, oh, let's look at, yeah. See, I made notes on this other PowerPoint. Now I'm using this thing. So uh, 1 Corinthians 14.37. I know I made some notes on this. 14.37, 1 Corinthians. If anyone thinks that he's a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. You know, it's pretty clear. Uh, 1 Corinthians 14, 37 and 38. You know, this stuff's all over there. How do they miss it? 37 and 38. If anyone thinks he's a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I'm writing to you are a command of the Lord. If anyone does not write, recognize this, he is not recognized. Boo. Okay, so bold statement. So the, the clueless theory, remember, they didn't think they were writing scripture. Okay, if you say so. All right, Luke claims to pass along the apostolic tradition. I love the beginning of Luke. Uh, the, you know, now, Luke wasn't an apostle, that, you know, formally it appears, but he was an apostolic person. So it's the same way with Mark. Maybe he wasn't an apostle, but he was an apostolic person. So Luke and Mark uh, are gospels and they're scripture, but you know, Luke traveled with Paul. Mark did too. And at the end, you read about Mark in, in 2 Timothy, and he's telling Timothy, bring Mark with you because he's beneficial. Yes? Can you just explain that again? Explain what? He was apostolic. He was associated with the apostles. How, yeah. did that, how, did that, how did they get named or defined as apostles? I mean, especially Paul. How did that, how does that work? Well, uh, how did they get the title of, and I'm, I'm, I'm probably dumb as a rock, but I'm asking kind of a <laughs> fundamental question yeah. about the, the beginning of that thought. Well, Jesus named 12 apostles. So we have that in the Gospels. And apostle is one who sent, apostella. They were sent. So, uh, uh, Paul claimed he was sent, though. What? Paul claims he was sent. Paul was. And part of the... Oh, okay, so Peter... Well, I got to find a substitute for uh, Judas. He defines some of that. You know, that's in Acts 1. Uh, very good question. So Acts, let's see. Nah, 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 nah. Okay. So. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That's the thing. Yeah. So for the twelve. So, uh, so you know, Peter's saying here in Acts uh, one twenty. Um, 
For it is written in the book of Psalms, or this is 20, May his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it, and let another take his office. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day he was taken up, one of these men must become with us witnesses to his resurrection. So they're witnesses. And they put forward two. Okay? And they cast lots. They voted or whatever it was. So those were some of the criteria of these early apostles, that they were with Paul, right, or Jesus from the beginning, from the baptism, from John. So, so, so just to clarify in my mind, if I understand what she just said, Jesus named those the apostles for those named by Jesus, including Paul, who got pulled up by the scruff of his neck. Yeah. No, he wasn't. He didn't know that was what's going to happen. Yeah. He got confronted by Jesus yes. directly. So therein lies the... Yeah. Okay, God. You know where it says that Paul said, was in the Acts, the Lord stood by me? You know, you go, what was that about? I used to think it was an angel, but I, I, I the Lord stood by me. You know, you fell in there on this ship and no sunlight for two weeks and things didn't look good. The Lord stood by me, so... Oh. But anyhow, they, they were people who'd seen the Lord Jesus Christ. They could testify, yeah, this guy's alive. I have seen him. The dead guy, he's in the Roman records and archives. They crucified this guy on a certain day. And, you know, you read in Ephesus and, or Acts, and, and they're talking about, oh, well, these guys are, you know, the Romans are talking, and these guys are arguing about this Jesus that was crucified by the Romans, and Paul says he's alive. You know, they're just going, uh, okay. Oh, Luke. So, you know, so he, he gives us some stuff about methodology that's really quite, you know, he's the only guy that tells us kind of what he was trying to do. In as much, 1-1, Luke 1-1, in as much as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministered ministers of the word have delivered them to us. It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty regarding the things that you have been taught. So Luke is saying, I've received some traditions from people that were eyewitnesses and ministers, because he wasn't an eyewitness. You know, there's a whole literature on ancient historians and historiography where the, 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 the best evidence is from eyewitness testimony. You know, if you, can, if you were there, you could testify to it and write a history. Or if you interviewed people that were there. I don't know if you ever studied Xenophon's Anabasis. Well, Xenophon was part of the, the Greek army that had attacked uh, Persia and then they had to go back. Not many people made it. So, but, you know, he was a classic uh, historian. So he says, you know, that just as those, yeah, he, he received these traditions from them, and then uh, he had he'd done his own research. And you can see there's things in Luke that don't occur elsewhere. You know, like that whole birth narrative. You know, where did he get that? I think he talked to Mary. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and it's, just, it's like a different language, too. He's got this Greeky stuff, and then he's just got, like, his notes 
from somebody telling them in Aramaic or I don't know. It's very different. Um, so, so Luke was that guy, and then Acts, and, but uh, they're all anonymous. We don't know that, you know, he didn't say Luke or, you know, even in Acts, he just says, the former book I wrote, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began to do and teach. He just refers to his gospel. Okay, so Peter, yeah, this is a really good one too. Uh, Second Peter. Uh, Hebrews, James, Peter. Yeah, this is not in the, the Syriac canon. But recently, I was examining citations of Acts in a lectionary, a Syriac lectionary at the British Museum, and I found quotes from Second Peter in it. Amazing. So, but the Catholic epistles are grouped with Acts in the manuscripts, even the Greek manuscripts, the Syriac manuscripts. And the only reason I saw it is because it said Acts, letter of Peter number two. Because I, I was just looking for Acts. Yeah, I'm trying to go through this thing and just find Acts and then find out what the Acts quote is and then analyze it. So, but then I saw the second Peter and went, whoa. And it, it turns out to be from the Philoxenian translation of the Syriac New Testament, which has never been seen in a lectionary before. So that was pretty cool. I, I, uh, always, this collating stuff is just miserable work. It's just, you look at stuff. I almost quit with a manuscript from Mount Sinai. I had 400 unique variants. From, and I measure variants 100 at a time by the note card, packs of note cards I used. I was just about ready to quit because it was just a lousy copy, lots of mistakes, but everything has to be recorded. Uh, but uh, anyhow, that was kind of cool. But it's a lot of work, and then every now and then you get these little, yeah, it's kind of like panning for gold or stuff like that. Uh, okay. So, Peter, oh, 2 Peter 3.16. These 3.16 numbers keep showing up, don't they? So, uh, well, maybe I ought to go to 13 or 15. And count the patience of our Lord at salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you concerning the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction, as they do the other scriptures. So Peter, if tradition is right, Paul and Peter were in Rome awaiting execution. They were executed at 65 or 66, like in June, early June. So uh, that was written close to the end of his life. Second Timothy was written close to the end of Paul's life. They don't mention each other, but you know, that's the, the, the witness of the early church is that they were killed uh, in Rome about the same time. So, but Peter's testifying to it. This is their, that's his last will and testament right there. And you read Second Timothy, that's like Paul's last will and testament. We'll look some more at that. 
So, uh, you know, revelation, you know, blessed is the one that reads and blessed is the one that hears these words. So I'm not going to read that. Uh, ah, theory number four. This is the Big Bang Theory. The New Testament books weren't regarded as Scripture until about 200 A.D. So, again, you know, canon and Scripture, so now they're saying uh, they weren't regarded as Scripture until about 200 A.D., and all of a sudden, pop! Okay. So, but, however, this doesn't mean there was, a, was not a functional canon of the Scriptures right from the beginning. And one reason for the 200 A.D. date is based on Irenaeus's famous statement regarding the four Gospels. So he was, died around 202. So he's writing the very end of the second century. So it is not possible that the Gospels can be either more or fewer than the number they are. And he just goes on and on about the number four, you know, the four corners, the four winds, and he just goes on. But that's how those guys, they express themselves back then. Okay. Is that? Okay, so the assumption is that Irenaeus was an innovator. If like, this is the Big Bang Theory, nobody knew about it until Irenaeus decided. Irenaeus was a bishop in Lyon in France, okay? So it wasn't like he was the Pope or anything. But he wrote a lot. All right, so uh, the church has really been rather conservative. So as a bishop, he's orthodox. He was orthodox in his views. He's just passing along what he received. All right. To see that Irenaeus was not an innovator, one only has to look at Clement of Alexandria. Now we, we peel back another hundred years. He mentions you know, Clement was a, a theological writer from Alexandria of Egypt, wrote in uh, uh, Greek. He was a little bit before origin. He was a great catech school of Alexandria, and he was part of that. And he mentions four Gospels, 13 Pauline epistles, Hebrews, Acts, 1 Peter, 1st, 2nd, and John, Jude, and Revelation. Clement is not the only early witness to the New Testament scriptures. So in reverse chronological order, Justin Martyr, 150 A.D., refers to plural Gospels, and he describes the Gospels as quote, drawn up by his apostles and those who followed them. And Justin cites from the Synoptics and John showing that he knew the four Gospels. Papias, going back a little earlier, he was a, a church historian. We only have what he, information from him that was preserved by Eusebius of Caesarea, who, who wrote in the beginning of the fourth century, uh, early 300s, uh, a church history. And he you know, it was great because he just basically quotes people. So you have things that don't survive anymore. So Papias tells us that the early church had received the Gospels of Mark and Matthew and valued them because of their apostolic status. He tells us that Mark received his information from Peter himself. And, and there's the tradition that Mark was Peter's assistant. Okay. Although Papias wrote around 125, he refers to an earlier time as a young man when he received this information from a guy called the Elder. And it's likely that this was John the Elder that it's talked about in, in some of the early documents, who was supposedly one of Jesus' disciples, perhaps around 90 A.D. Papias also knew 1 Peter, 1 John, Revelation, and some Pauline epistles. So 
Anyhow, so I mean, Papias was really interested in talking to those guys that knew Jesus or knew the guys or talking to the guys that knew the guys that knew Jesus. And, and he wrote five books, and we just have fragments. Okay, Barnabas, 130. And he's called an apostolic father um, in the epistle of Barnabas. Okay, Barnabas. In uh, the epistle of Barnabas explicitly cites Matthew. Many are called, but few are chosen. Barnabas clearly regards Matthew as Scripture because he introduces his citation with, It is written. Same language he uses in citing Old Testament books. Clement, Bishop of Rome, now we're back to the late first century, about 95. He's an apostolic father. And First Clement, um, he wrote two epistles. First Clement uh, was written to the church at Corinth. This is the first epistle of Clement to the church of the Corinthians, or the epistle of the church of the Corinthians. Charges the church to, quote, take up the epistle of that blessed apostle Paul. To be sure, he sent you a letter in the spirit concerning himself. And Cephas, Cephas and Apollos. Okay? So scholars agree that Clement is referring here uh, to the letter of 1 Corinthians, which he said Paul wrote in the spirit, showing the high authority he gave to the book. First Clement also makes likely allusions to other epistles of Paul, including Romans, Galatians, Philippians, Ephesians, and also Hebrews. And, and we just read from Peter. Now we're back to about 65 A.D., right before he dies. He refers to Paul's epistles. And they were so, in the way, if you read that quote in 2 Peter, they were so well-known, he just refers to all his letters. And everybody knew what he was talking about. <laughs> so, you know, and Metzger mentions, you know, it's just so strange. We don't have anything in the annals of church history to explain this process. He didn't explain it. Everybody knew what he was talking about. Okay, so conclusion. Based on the above, there was little debate in the early church regarding what was Scripture. Though there was some uncertainty regarding 2 Peter, 2 and 3 John, Jude, and Revelation, the essential core of the New Testament was known and agreed to very early. Another implication of this is that the theology of the church had been set along with its scriptures well before the heretics and the apocryphal writings came into play. All right, so another myth, the apocryphal books were as popular as the canonical books. They call this a fantasy theory. So there's no manuscript evidence from the second and third centuries to support this idea uh, that the apocryphal books were as popular. Uh, and, and this, so there are 60 manuscripts from this period, 18 from John alone, gospel. 17 apocryphal manuscripts come from this period. And the most popular of which is the Gospel of Thomas with three manuscripts. And there are very few citations of the apocryphal works among the earliest church fathers, writers. Yeah, but I mean, they, they could quote something just because they, they liked it. It's just like we might quote from Pilgrim's Progress or, you know, C.S. Lewis, right? Doesn't mean we consider them scripture. So... And the most popular of these, the Gospel of Thomas, was never on a list or discussions of the canon. Okay? So that was number five. That's the fantasy theory. All right. Ah, number six. 
Christians couldn't tell ortho heresy from orthodoxy until the fourth century. I call this the idiot theory. Okay. It's like okay, these guys get so, the pride stuff, right? Is a miss, you know, they get so smart and they're just smarter than everybody in the room. I mean, they really are. And they know more. And you talk to them and they're going to go, you know, you can't argue because they just know everything. Okay. So, but they don't know everything. But they, they start to think that way. And they know an enormous amount. But when you look at what was known, of the ancient world to what we have today. People just spend all their time studying little bits and fragments. You know, we have the fragments of Papias. Could you imagine if you had Eusebius's library in Caesarea? He had all those books, all those, the missing stuff he cites from. You know, what would we know? You know, Papias talks about talking to all these old guys. We don't know. We just have these little bits. So anyhow, the idiot theory. They couldn't tell heresy from orthodoxy. And this comes from a book called or by Walter Bauer, who wrote the most famous dictionary of Greek. I mean, truly brilliant man. He read all of Greek literature to form, um, to, to write his dictionary. In fact, I use a, you know, well, it's probably the third or fourth edition translated into English because he was a German guy and, you know, updated. But he wrote a book. This was after he'd already established himself. And, and he was really good at dictionaries. But he wrote a book called Orthodoxy and Heresy and Earliest Christianity. And it became popular in, in the U.S. from the 70s when it was translated into English. But he wrote back in the 30s. Okay, It, it, it had been refuted in, in Europe. It just wasn't really good church history. Uh, but it caught the wave right in, in the United States. And, uh, you know, ideas of diversity and, and all of this, just he feeds into that. But, you know, he wasn't a woke guy. He's just writing a church history. So he posited that there were many Christianities, and it wasn't until the 4th century that the Orthodox party won and rewrote history. Uh, so that became popular. And, you know, you know, anytime you can write about stuff that other people don't know about, you can get tenure and get famous at your university. Uh, so there's always that attraction. Uh, it, it's just a constant temptation to let it slip. Uh, and, so, and then he said the Orthodox Party won and rewrote history. So that was uh, Walter Bauer, and truly great lexicographer. And, you know, who's that Bart Ehrman guy? Uh, he picked up on that. His and Ehrman stuff is just garbage. Unfortunately, he, he was Metzger's student. He's a professor at UNC, but uh, his stuff's just garbage, but he's smarter than everybody in the room. All right, so, but the problem is that Bauer was really wrong. The old, we had the Old Testament scriptures, the core New Testament books, and then this rule of faith. And this is actually where ca canon is sometimes used in, in early Christian literature, canon, a rule of faith various summaries and beliefs and creeds, perhaps beginning with 1 Corinthians 15. You know, and we ought to look at that. In fact, Tim Coyle had talked about this. I had him look at my stuff, make sure I was orthodox. I love Tim. Tim, are you here? 
He was a little under the weather. He called me last night. No, not that Tim. Tim Coyle. Reverend Tim Coyle. All right, so uh, beginning of 1 Corinthians 15. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel that, which I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in, blame, in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and appeared to keep us, then to the twelve. Then He appeared to more than 500 brothers at once, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. And, and, and on He goes. So, but He says, I, I, I remind you, the, the gospel which I received, and he received it personally, paralambano is a Greek word, but this para, which I, I received from you, which you received, paralambano, and I preached to you. So, all right, so there, there's these rules of faith. They show up in the New Testament, and they were always, we have the creeds. In fact, I was riding my bicycle with a guy who's a Roman Catholic, but he doesn't know anything about it. They don't go to church. And I was, somehow I got talking to him about, oh, I'm translating this work on uh, Christ's entrance into Sheol. He's always asking me what I'm doing. I said, oh, one thing I was working on was this translation of a Syriac work on Christ's entrance into Sheol. And he says, well, what is Sheol? And I said, well, Sheol is the Hebrew word for hell, or, you know, the, where people go when they die. And then he said, I don't know I ever heard of that. And I said, oh, man, you had to. You, you went to church. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and Jesus Christ, the Son of our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead and buried, and descended into hell, and through, all that. And, and then he remembered. <laughs> I'm working on this guy. I spend more time talking to him than anybody else. You know, we ride a couple times a week. Spend a lot of time talking. Okay, so anyhow, we have these rules. So Tim, tell me when I need to stop. Oh, you know, I think I can get through the misconception. Christianity was an oral religion, and that's the dummies back then theory. It's like you, these smart guys think that people back then were just stupid. So. It's almost like we can ignore what they say. But again, like I said, what would you give to just be in, in Eusebius's library for a day? You know? Huh. So, illiteracy, likely most people couldn't read. However, this doesn't mean that they didn't highly regard written documents. The Jews certainly did, and the first Christians were Jews and relied on the Old Testament. Or they say they were averse to writing. And that's based on a misunderstanding of Papias, uh, who wrote, I did not suppose that information from books would help me so much as the word of the living and surviving voice. That was his historiographical methodology. He wanted to talk to the witnesses. Not that books weren't important. Papias wrote five books, at least. Right? He was writing a book. So, uh, so okay. Uh, so he was writing. Oh, they say, uh, 1 Corinthians 3, it's not the letter, but not of the letter, but of the spirit, for the letter kills. So they didn't like to, to read. 
okay? Or the theory is the world's going to end shortly, so we don't need books. But then Paul's telling us about the parousia. You know, why is he writing? Yeah. All right. Uh, the Gospels weren't written by Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. There's a number of people that say that. In other words, we know more 2,000 years later than what the people knew in the first century. Because it didn't say who wrote them in the books. Uh, they're anonymous texts. But you know, most of the stuff in the Old Testament is anonymous too. Or many things. However, this doesn't mean that they were not written by those to whom they were attributed the uniformity of the manuscript evidence, so we're almost getting into it next week, indicates an early and authoritative determination of the names of the Gospels. If it were much later, even at the end of the first century or the beginning of the second, there wouldn't be this uniformity. There had to be, you know, the, the big guy, somebody, that said, this is how it is, okay, to establish that. And everybody knew, I mean, these guys were, everybody knew these guys. Okay. So, like I said, everybody at the time of the apostles knew who wrote what. And the titles, uh, it's like according to Matthew, according to Mark, according to Luke, according to John. It's almost like there were labels on the outside of books. You have them in a stack. That's all. It's according to Matthew. Okay? Oh, we got Matthew here. Took the bus here in the rain to come to church. He's sitting in the back. So... Uh, I told him I'd give him a ride, but he had to sit through this. <laughs> so, uh, but anyhow, so these are uh, just like file labels. Oops. All right. So, Balcom, if you, you're really curious, Jesus and the Eyewitnesses book is just fascinating. He shows in great detail that the, the Gospels weren't as anonymous as we might think. And he shows that they're eyewitness testimony. And you can identify the writers. Now, the most obvious, obvious, is the Gospel of John. He talks about the disciple here and there. Well, that's John, okay? But there's subtle things all through, and, and he did a great, just fascinating. All right, so how much, yeah, Tim's pointing to, the, to watch. Okay, well, we got through what it isn't, but you learned a lot about what it is. So... I guess we can start this. Should I take some questions or we need, do we need to clear out? Three minutes. Okay. So self-authenticating. We'll start there next week. Please bring your handouts. Um, questions. I love questions. Yes, sir. A parousia is the, the, the refers to the return of Christ. The personal presence. It's really par amy. It's like to come to be with yeah but it refers to the the coming of christ but it's also it's just another greek word that means like personal presence coming to so okay parousia that, that's the nice word that, this greek word Any, anything else all right well good thank you for putting up with me and uh so we'll get to get we'll do it next week see how far we get so it's fascinating stuff absolutely Thank you.